Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all the wonderful promises that are attached to listening to you in this passage. And so we pray today you would so work in our hearts that we apply what you say to the people that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to Christ Church today. My name's Morris. I'm one of the leaders here. If you are uh, either a Christian or you know some Christians, you may notice some strange behavior at this time of year. And that is that in the summer, Christians tend to be going off to do strange things. Uh, You might uh, see some of them talk about going on a camp, which is a strange thing because most of the camps are not under tents. Or some Christians go to Christian conferences that involve gathering in big tents in a field. You've got a picture there, lots of lights, and they sing. I've done lots of things like that over the years. And the main effect of those things on my life, of going to those conferences and camps, the main effect of my life has been that when I get back, I miss being there on the camp. That's the practical outcome. And I sense that's true for lots of us for going away on our sort of Christian jamboree. Maybe it's even true for you coming to church week by week. You know, you learn something at church, and you come away from your Bible study, and you feel encouraged, and you're chewing it over, and you have coffee at the end, and you sort of chat to a Christian friend, and you say, hmm, and then tomorrow at this time, well, there's just no difference at all in your life that you came to church today. Just, it's gone, lost. For lots of us, we tend to think that church is just a sort of oasis. The rest of the world is a desert. And we hide here for a little while every week so we feel a bit better than we head back into the desert. And the streams of living water Jesus says he offers are not pouring out of here into the rest of the world. This is like a fortress. Now that is a misapplication, a wrong application of something that's true. So the truth about the good news of Jesus is this. This is the message that we are telling people here. Jesus offers us free restoration to God. All the punishment that is necessary has been taken by Jesus for us to be right with the God who made everything. And also, there is a new creation coming. God is in the process of remaking everything. That's true. But it does not follow that this world doesn't matter. It does not follow that everything going on that sort of unspiritual doesn't matter to God, not at all. But that's the way Christians sometimes behave. We exist in our strange world in the tent, and then real life just normality. That's how many Christians think. All the punishment is taken, we gather together in church, have a little celebration of that, then we go out and do what we like. And that has actually had terrible consequences. Christians thinking that way, Uh, right through from very serious things, Christians out in the world supporting slavery, covering up abuse, because, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in the world, the punishment's taken, right the way through to more sort of pedestrian consequences, that for lots of us, being a Christian, most of the time is just a bit tiring and dry and boring and doesn't have a much effect on the world. Looks like my other picture there. It's all done in the past, it's all to come in the future. 
Well, if that's how you feel, you need to read these books of the Bible, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job and Ecclesiastes, what we call the wisdom literature, because the connection between that world, the spiritual world at church, and the, this, what we view as the real world that you'll be facing tomorrow morning, the connection is this thing called wisdom. Because the wisdom books say God is doing something in this world now. And it's not that God is doing something and we just sort of watch. What God is interested in doing is taking our hand, bringing us close to him and walking with us through everything he's made. Teaching us how to live day by day in this world that belongs to him. The normal Christian life is living that way. Living in this world close to the God who made this world. So as we gather here today, or as you go off to your camp this summer, whatever it is you like doing, it's not just about survival. It's not just a breather. It's reorientating our view so you're ready to live in the world when you go back to it. So, as chapter 9 of our passage says today, it's very practical. So you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. That's why we're gathering here, so that you can go out there and me, out there into the world, knowing the right way to live. God cares about that. Last week, as we were talking about, which, uh, talking about the sermon, someone said to me afterwards, I haven't checked that I can quote them, so I hope they won't mind. Uh, they said, the thing about this thing, wisdom, is it all seems a little bit wishy-washy. Feels like God's sort of saying, you go and work out how to live in the world. What I'd prefer is God to sort of download some rules, say, here's some rules to follow. You can basically ignore God, just follow the rules and get on with life. And it's just what the wisdom literature is saying is God's not interested in having that relationship with you. He's not interested in submission. God is interested in teaching you like a father teaches his children, walking through this world, learning with him. And what a great offer that is. Wisdom is life-giving because we don't have to be stuck, tired, dead, bored in everyday life, looking at the church or the camp or the conference as a place to escape and breathe and forget. No, the offer of wisdom is saying God is doing something in this world now, and he's doing it as his people learn to walk with him as a father. And as they do that, they by which I mean we, will bring peace and justice and rightness and fairness into his world now. The connection is wisdom. And that's a vision of the Christian life I can get behind. Jumping between two lives, the spiritual one and the physical one, that have nothing to do with each other, is hard and I don't really want to do it. But... Learning the thoughts behind everything that I see and walking with the thinker of those thoughts to put them into practice in my place, my home, my field of expertise, that's a brilliant picture. One we can all get behind, I hope. 
Um, Proverbs chapter 1, we've looked at, describes that life. Proverbs chapter 2, we're looking at today, tells us how we get it. And here's the first way we get that wise life. We resist passivity. Here's the way that lots of us tend to think about being a Christian. We say, we think we're saved to belong to God, and then we think God put laws in place to keep us in the right way. So here's a law, here's a law, stay doing the right thing within the laws. But as long as you stay doing the right thing, you're fine. And occasionally we know we break the laws, and so that's when you need Jesus. But basically, I do what I like within the rules, and God will challenge me if he needs to, to intervene to do something in particular. Now, my guess is, if that's your view of the Christian life, stay within the rules and wait for God to give me some miraculous sense I should be doing something different, but otherwise, I'll just potter on. I guess if that's how you're living as a Christian, it's probably pretty unsatisfactory. You probably don't feel much like you're on an adventure with the God who loves you, who holds the world in his hands. I guess it probably means you don't really feel like Jesus is much to do with your life because Jesus is only involved in this type of Christian life when you break the rules, isn't he? I just do what I like most of the time. Oh, I've broken a rule, I'll involve Jesus. Sorry, Jesus, thanks, okay, back to doing my thing. And hence, most of us go for quite a long time without any really thought or reference to Jesus in life. Because our view is, he'll interrupt if he needs to. Life is too busy, and I don't need to apologize, because I haven't broken the rules, and I have things to get on with. Proverbs gives a different view of the world than that. This book says that the life of God infects every single part of this world. His fingerprints are there in how how ants behave. He has something to say about the simplest transfer of money, how you speak to your spouse, your relationship with the people who live next door to you. He set all of that up, and his character lives in all of those little things. Every aspect of this life fizzes with his life. And wisdom, the life we live, in response to that, is calling out to be involved. Why do we have this dry, godless life so often? It's because we're passive. We just think, oh, I'll just do what I like and wait for God to interrupt me. And Proverbs says, resist passivity. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Did you see there are four things, four ifs, if you will do this. If you will accept my words and store up my commands, if you will turn your ear and apply your heart, if you will call out and cry aloud, if you will look for wisdom more than you look for money, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. If you will only do this, then you'll be able to walk this way. If you will only think this way, you will begin to live in this right relationship with God every day of your life. Four ifs. If you will accept and store up. If you will decide that these words rule you so much that you're willing to remember them. You'll be ready then to get on with the wise thing when you work it out. If you've built up, remembered, accepted the things that God has taught you. 
Listen, if you don't open the Bible ready to say, I will accept this and do what it says, no matter the cost, you probably are not going to learn anything. Because you only get to put this into practice if you're willing to accept it. And similarly, make an effort to remember it. Accept and, uh, what is it? Accept and store up. I love that picture. Why are we not remembering God at work? Because we're not making any effort to remember him. It's sort of obvious. Turn your ear and apply your heart. That is, listen to God and not just sigh. Say, hmm, interesting talk this morning. Time for coffee. Consider prayerfully for your heart. Can I respectfully suggest that if at this very moment you're scrolling through Twitter, pretending to be reading your Bible on your phone, or dropping off to sleep, you're probably not that interested in turning your ear to God's wisdom. You probably don't have a rich and full experience of God in your life. Or if you go home and just forget everything today because Wimbledon is on, or you need to get on with your marking. That is not applying your heart to wisdom. We carefully need to apply what God says to the deepest part of who I am. There's a subtle version here, common today, of basically we believe there's things about ourselves God doesn't get his hands on. You know, this is me, this is the real me, and as long as God respects that I'm born this way, I can listen to him. That's why the writer uses this little phrase, heart. Heart in Proverbs means that inner bit of you. And God says you have to be ready for what I say to be applied to that person. Not just on the surface to the things you might do or not do. All of that has to be up for grabs too if you want to know the right way to live. There's no saying, oh well, I am just an angry person. Or, I did do that wrong, but I'm not sorry. If you're ready, really listen, you will be ready to apply it to the deepest part of you. The next one, call out and cry aloud. How often do you tell God you desperately need his help to walk through his world? My guess is you do that maybe now and again when you're in a crisis. But we're not talking about crises here. We're talking about normal day-to-day living out the life of God in normal life. How much of your inner monologue, what's going on in your head as you approach the world, is asking God to give you real wisdom to walk in the fear of the Lord? If you're anything like me, it's just not very much of my inner monologue. And then I turn to God and say, oh God, my Christian life is so boring and I don't feel like you're near me. Big surprise. I'm tired and stuck and feeling like God's not involved in my life because I haven't really asked God to be involved in my life. He's polite like that. A few of us in church this week together uh, tried to do this spiritual discipline of fasting, which is not eating for a little while so we could pray. And um, I was not a very nice person to being, uh, be around. My family will tell you when I was hungry. And why was that? Because this whole thing of disciplining my behavior in order to seek God 
is so new. It's so sort of odd to us. We prefer the other model. I just potter about doing what I like and God will interrupt if he wants to do something. God says, call out and cry aloud all the time. Fourthly, look for it as silver, as hidden treasure. There are lots of people saying, I really do want God's wisdom, but also I want some nice material stuff too. It was Jesus who said, you can't serve God and money. But it doesn't stop lots of us trying. You know, I do want wisdom. I do want to know the right way to live. I want to walk knowing God. I want to bring rightness and peace and justice to the world. I want a more alive Christian life. As long as it's in the context of me having this nice thing. This success. This nice place to live. And if that's the sort of if of it, I'll take it if I get this as a context. As long as I can protect this material blessing by seeking God's wisdom. Well, that's the thing you're really seeking, isn't it? Not God's wisdom at all. That's why the the writer says, if you look for it as silver and search for it as hidden treasure, Why don't the amazing things we think of and do and talk about here affect life so that everything we do, every challenge we face, every place we go is an adventure of learning with God, spreading his life into the world? Why doesn't this connect to that? Proverbs 2 says, mostly because we don't want it to. We don't want to submit to advice from outside us. We don't want to have our very selves changed by God. We don't ask God continually to be with us. And there's some other material thing taking the energy we should be giving to living this way. We're passive. Now, Proverbs is right here. And just to underline, I don't think it's saying you need to give up being a doctor or a teacher or a parent or a book reader or a tennis watcher and become a monk and just read the Bible all day. That's definitely what it's not saying. What it's saying is this, this whole world is God's. And that means there is a way to walk with him, to know him, to enjoy his life, to bring the light of knowing him, whatever you're doing. If you're ready to submit to him, if you want to be changed in the very deepest part of you, if you actually moment by moment ask him desperately for help, if you search for that life above comfort and money and success. So Proverbs says, if you want that life, resist passivity. Don't sit here, hear it all, and then wait for God to change you. And definitely don't do that, and then start angrily wondering why your Christian life is stuck. That's why it's stuck. Second thing, God gives himself. You might think that the best benefit of a wise life is some good stuff. And there is some of that, too. We'll see there's a mention of uh, good health and um, uh, other good blessings of God, but really what you get if you resist being passive is the way of relating truly to God. Look at verse 5. If you do all of these things, 
Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The thing that God wants you to get through walking with him in the world is him. The aim he has for you is that you, as you walk his way in his world, is that you really begin to know him in a life-giving, amazing way. That's what he wants for you, if you'll only stop being passive. If you hang around with people uh, in universities too much, which I do a bit, people in universities think they're very clever, and they also have an idea, uh, and they have a vested interest in putting this forward, that basically it's all ideas that lead to actions. So I think it's like someone has an idea, it's a really great idea, everybody takes it on board, and then everybody changes how they behave. People who've actually lived in the real world a little bit more realise it's a bit more like this. That uh, you change how you think, to change how you think, you change how you act. And how you act begins to affect how you think. And how you think begins to change how you act. It's not... I will learn wisdom at church and then I will know how to live a wise life. It's that as I begin to put these things into practice, I will begin to know God more and that will change my practice. Can you see how that's worked? Maybe you've had the experience of saying, I ought to pray more. And so you really try and you pray more. And it does change things. It changes you, changes the things around you. And that reinforces the idea the Bible teaches that God wants you to pray, and so you pray a bit more. If we respect God rightly and live that out, we gain more and more this right way of relating to God. See, there's a risk when we talk about wisdom. It sounds just like advice for a better life. But it's much more than that. It's a quite astonishing truth about life is that the God who made everything reaches out to us. He reaches out so much that he became a person, Jesus Christ. And that God who is there in Jesus Christ, that is the same God who made everything else in this world. And that means in everything. Studying politics, going to a nightclub, struggling at work, buying a house, having sex, Disciplining your children, celebrating and grieving and eating and fasting. All of that is not just a battle we face and we get recharged at church. As we do those things, looking for God in all of them, we'll find we're getting to know him better in his world. That's the promise of wisdom. God is not standing in heaven saying, oh, wish they'd learn how to live properly. But he is saying, Listen, everything you see is an expression of me. It's come to know me through that. And there's a moral promise attached because when you know God that way, that's when you become someone who brings rightness and justice and fairness into all of those places we've been talking about. If you're in the hands of the God who made this world and loves justice... Who knows what effect you might have, but it's not just going to happen. Now, two questions before we move on that uh, cropped up when I was studying this this week. What do we make of God promising success in verse 7? 
for people who are wise. Uh, There are places you could go, and they would say, well, what that means is, if you do the right things, God will bless you with money and an excellent career and uh, everything like that. I once visited a church, and uh, it was a church unlike ours, where they passed around an offering bucket for you to put money in. And the person leading the church actually said, if you're in need of some success in your life, a better job or a better family or a breakthrough in some area, make sure you put plenty of money into the offering bucket because God will grant you success. And Proverbs used as the example. Well, presumably that's not what this means, as many Christians in the world who really seem to make wise decisions don't have that type of success. So what does it mean? Well, someone was telling me uh, this, a story this week about two friends of theirs, the same age. One uh, is very successful in his career, is rich, is married, has children, and has sent them to the best schools because he's been able to afford to do that. And one, same age, at a young, an early age, moved to another part of the world to share the gospel with people who'd never heard it and love, the peop- love urban poor people. He's never got married and has no money. However, the rich friend's children now have no interest in Christianity at all. And what he's ended up doing, the rich friend, is getting his poor friend back across from where he is in the world to tell his children exciting stories about what it means to follow God so they'll be more interested in Jesus again. Now, where's the success there? I think you could easily look verse 7 and say he holds success in store for the upright. Here's the other question. When does wisdom enter my heart and become pleasant to my soul in verse 10? Someone asked a question last week after the service, which we will do at the end this week too, which I actually found quite troubling. I've been thinking about it all week. Um, It's all very well for the writer of Proverbs to make these promises. If you're wise, God will bless you in this way. But what if making the wise decision feels like it's hurt me? What if there's been a huge cost to me to doing what's wise? It feels like making the wise choice is often painful and hard and difficult, not at all like God is a shield to those whose life is blameless. Well, I think what you see here is that Being wise is a bit like riding a bike. Uh, I'm talking about something I don't really know much about here, so excuse me if I get this wrong. But as I observe people cycling, what I notice is that say you're at the bottom of a hill um, and you need to start cycling up the hill, the beginning is very, very difficult. At first, putting that correct action into practice is really hard. It's like this. You know, there's pain, pain down here. There's pain to living, to doing that action. And if you've recently become a Christian or you've just started to apply God's wisdom to somewhere in your life, it's like that. You're just beginning and it's really hard to get started. But like riding a bike, the more that you build up speed, the more God's wisdom shapes what you love the more you change. The more you do it, the more it becomes like getting to the top of the hill and over the brow and sailing down over the country road, enjoying God's world, living the way that he said. That's the promise in the end that wisdom will become pleasant to your soul. 
But I don't take away at all from the fact that starting that journey is often like pushing the pedals very hard. One of my heroes is a lady called Helen Rosevere. Um, she's actually died. She's gone to be with the Lord now. And she gave her life. She's a very successful, intelligent doctor, but she gave her life to setting up hospitals where there were none and went through really terrible things whilst doing that um, because of the civil war in the country where she was setting up hospitals and had to return home. And she lived the rest of her life, you would think, with very little. She'd not lots of success to show in her ministry, hospital ministry. Most of it was destroyed in the Civil War. And she didn't have any money. She lived in a little sort of old lady bungalow. You can imagine the type. Chintz carpet. And yet, if you ever heard her speak, she just brought the peace of God with her wherever she went. There's a friend of mine who's going through something very difficult and went to hear her speak, not on that topic, But just because she spoke so warmly of Jesus, my friend came away saying, I've got the strength to keep going now. Well, do you see what happened? She made very difficult start-the-bike decisions in her 20s to honor God. Choices that meant she never got married, she experienced very hard things. But she started back then fearing God above anyone else. She was pushing the pedals really hard. And later in her life, God's way of living was pleasant to her. It was her joy to walk with God. And she brought rightness and peace and justice wherever she went. So if at the moment you're at the stage of just pushing the pedals very hard, I hope that gives you some hope. Third and last thing we'll see, and we're doing the rest of the passage very briefly in case you're panicking. Wisdom protects our path. Wisdom protects our path. There are two ways, I notice, that people make unwise decisions that eventually sort of back them into making evil decisions. They begin unwise, it becomes evil. There's two ways I see that happening. And we do them because the first one is we assume neutrality. So we assume basically like, well, I'm just having a break from God's wisdom and I'll be okay And um, then I might go back to doing God's wisdom later. But of course, none of us are neutral. If you're not digging away at God's wisdom, resisting being passive, if you're not understanding and living here as if it's God's world, if you're not really doing that, then the ways of this world, which are wrong and bad, those are affecting you. That's what verses 12 to 15 is all about. If you are just passive... If you don't accept God, turn your ear to him. If you don't ask for insight, if we continue wanting material things more, we feel like we're coasting. But we're not. The truth is, this world is mostly run by people who don't love God. And those are the ways you're following, whether you're choosing them or not. If you don't apply yourself to God's wisdom... It is only really seeking wisdom this way that will protect you from the paths of the evil. We're not neutral. Believe me, I see it, I feel it. When I'm slow and lazy and don't care, when I bounce about not breaking God's law but not making any practical positive decisions to follow God, someone is still influencing me. 
It's likely to be a way of the world that hates God that's influencing me. You see this happen. It's amazing to me, but it shouldn't be really. That even people who on the surface seemed like mature Christians suddenly, in a moment of crisis, start spouting unwise, stupid rubbish. You think they've been mature Christians for ages, and all of a sudden they start saying things like, oh yeah, but I have to do what's right for me. And everyone deserves to be happy. And you've got to be successful at what you do. And I must be respected at all costs. What has happened there? It's that you weren't really applying wisdom to your own heart for ages. And you're not neutral. You have followed the ways of the wicked. Only wisdom will protect you from that. That's the first reason people move from being unwise to acting evilly. The other reason that people move from unwise to just evil, it's nearly always something to do with sex. Verse 16. The whole issue, it's like when I said that word, a bell rang. <laughs> someone's, someone's got like a, you know, naughty words alarm. <laughs> Sexual temptation in Proverbs is given a face. Uh, She's called a woman, like wisdom is a woman in Proverbs, sexual temptation is given a face, the adulteress. It's not saying anything bad about women. It's saying that if you passively don't mine away at finding wisdom and don't submit and don't change yourself and cry to God, and if you seek material things, you will be very open to the seductive pull of sexual temptation, whether it's a particular person, an unwise habit, a way of life which doesn't respect and honor God's intentions for sex and marriage, if you're passive and you're not really applying yourself to God's wisdom, you will be pulled away by that strong drag of illicit sex. Believe me, I see that and feel it too. How many people who look like just normal Christians, you know, they're not problematic, they're just sort of normal, average Christians, have a secret porn habit? Quite a lot, I suspect. How many people don't wisely invest in their marriages and then they begin unwisely spending time talking to that nice, sympathetic person at work and, oh my goodness, all of a sudden they've turned the corner to doing something that's actually evil? How many people live, even for a long time, in seemingly okay, contented singleness, saying, yeah, I'm totally fine with it, it's all really fine, and then all of a sudden explode into some sort of sinful behavior? Why does that happen? Because we didn't resist passivity. We didn't pursue wisdom. We didn't submit and store up and apply what God says to our deepest selves. We didn't cry out all the time for his understanding of the world. We didn't want the wise life more than money. If we really do those things, we'll really know right relating to God. And that will protect us from stupidly taking on the ways of living invented by people who hate God and being sucked into sexual behavior that will ruin our lives. And others. I just want to finish by thinking about words. Because actually this passage is all about different type of words. Wisdom in verse 6 comes from God's mouth. 
And that is, an, is opposed to the words of the wicked in verse 12, which are twisted and messed up. And the words of the adulteress in verse 16, that are seductive and, and attractive towards what's wrong. And I want to think about the place where you, in your life at this moment, are seeking wisdom. Maybe it's a decision. Or maybe it's a mess you've made in a particular area. Or maybe it's just feeling like you don't know what to do. And if I was to say to you, well, talk to me about why you're behaving the way you're behaving, it is just a cop-out for you to say, oh, I just feel like it's the right thing to do, okay? That's just avoiding the issue. What I want to ask you to do before God now is to say, put it into words. Put it into words. I am angry because of this. I really need this. I am annoyed because somebody did this. I have to have this. Put it into words. Honestly, before God. And once you put it into words, and those words are out there, what type of words are they? Are they the words that the Lord, in all his righteousness and generosity, would give? Are they words like God would say, I want the best for the people who need it? Or are they the words of the wicked? I'm not getting what I need and what I want. Are they the words of the adulteress? If I just compromise in this way, I'll be happy. If I didn't have this annoying commitment, I'd experience this pleasure and life will be better. Put it into words. And if you find your words are the words of the wicked or the words of the adultery, then accept wisdom's words instead. Allow wisdom right into your heart to change the person that you are, because that will bring the reality of God into your life right now. And that will turn you from being wicked or just tempted into bringing righteousness into this world now. Let's pray. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful picture that you just don't leave us to our own devices and then intervene on again but you constantly want to teach us about this world. And applying ourselves to that is what will teach us to live the right way, will guard us from wrong ways of thinking and living. And so, Lord, whatever words we came up with just there as we were listening to the talk, however we put what we're feeling and striving for into words, whether they are wise words or wicked words, or adulterous words, we bring them to you and cry out to you as you tell us to, to make us wise. Just take a couple of minutes of quiet to reflect. And if anyone has any questions uh, about Proverbs 2, now is a chance to ask them. Don't be too long. Yeah, they are. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah.
yeah, so the question was, um, both our, our own sin will tell us to put ourselves first, and that's the prevailing attitude of our world that sort of endorses that. Um, how do we resolve to follow wisdom in the face of that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's this is sort of like, live as a Christian disciple is the answer to that question. I mean, it's like a huge topic. I think I'd say two things. The first thing is, the wise life is a gift. So actually, everybody knows that living just seeking stuff for yourself all the time doesn't turn you into a nice person and actually over time does not make you happy. Now we are bombarded with the message that you're just not working hard enough at trying to be happy. But that's just not true. People who behave that way, you know, shrivel and horrible and it does not create a nice world. The wise life of fearing God first and following in the path of people who have given themselves for others is a gift. It's a, it's a better way to live. And we see that a lot in our society with there's stirrings of it, isn't this whole mindfulness thing and generous living and stuff. People are beginning to get that in a very sort of limited way, but it's all in wisdom. That's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I'd say is that's why I think you have this heavy emphasis in the first four verses of this passage saying, if you'll only do this, if you'll only turn your ear, store up, apply to your heart. Because it is saying it's very, you know, it doesn't just happen. You're like, oh, I've read the Bible. Great, I feel better. That's not how we are wired. That's not how it works. There's a deep work that that we have responsibility for. Um, But I think in terms of the resentful thing, it's like seeing the beauty of the wise life. It's a gift to be offered to live that way. But we can talk lots about that. Great question, thank you. One more? Yeah. Oh. Yes, Tindia. Yeah. yeah. So I think the question was, um, is wanting a better life, better job, a better life for your family, a bad thing in itself? Can you do that in a wise way? Um, you sort of use the illustration in your talk of the, the yeah. two friends. Um, does it always follow that pattern, I guess? Yeah, is. yeah it's great. Thank you, Tindia, for that question. Yeah. The illustration was very binary, and I'm aware of that because Proverbs is very binary. It's very like, there's this or there's this, you choose. Um, and in fact, life is not quite as binary as that. Um, and that's why we have this category, wisdom. So I think, I can never say to you, it is wrong of you to want a better life for your family. But the thing we are supposed to say to each other is, is it wise to build your life around getting this and the most I can even say is a question. I can't even say it's unwise, usually. All I can sort of say is, is, is it wise to build your life around getting this? And for many of us, building our lives around fearing God will look like providing for our families, and etc. But I think I'd want to say to all of us, is it wise to build your whole life around material success for your children? Is, is that wise? Um, I'm not sure it is. That's probably the most that I can say. Um, so, so wanting those things not wrong, no, because fearing God will often look like that. But there's a real challenge from wisdom to say what's central in your motivation and is it wise. Um, Lindsay said something very helpful to me the other day. I hope I can quote you without permission. But she was saying that like, you make a little, if you're going on a journey and you make a little tiny change at the start where you end up is very different than if you'd never made that change. And I just think there's probably something going on there that we sort of think like, oh, well, I look the same as the person next door who's trying to get promotion in their career, even though I'm providing for my family. So don't really worry about the motivations and what I want to get. But actually, you've made a little change to say, um, I'm fearing God is not the most important thing. The most important thing is 
providing for my family. And that looks very similar here, but looks very different down here. So I think that's why we do the work of what, um, what am I wanting in my heart, put it into words and take it to God, because little changes make big differences later on. Great question again. We could talk about that all day. We should stop. Yeah.